0: Biblical images that might be confusing to people who are not familiar with uh, the gospel, but being washed in the blood sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? But it's the blood of Christ and His forgiveness, and it's the only act that can give us freedom from bondage and forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, Scripture says there is no forgiveness for sins. So we celebrate that as we come to the table just now. Second Sunday of November. How did that happen anyway? Good grief. But 17 sleeps till my wife gets back, so we're counting the days. I want to start by telling you a, a, an experience I had on one of my trips to the persecuted church in Southeast Asia, um, a country that was, is riddled with idolatry, and worship of false gods. And as we moved around, we'd see on every street corner these shrines uh, with incense and fresh fruit and just everywhere. And if you're up early enough in the morning, which uh, I did on occasion uh, to get out and move around, if you're up early enough, you'll see people Standing on a little step to reach the top of these idols to clean out the old fruit and everything that's been burned there from the day before. Clean it all up and then put fresh fruit there, more incense. They go through a whole ritual every single morning. Everywhere you turn, you just see these idols literally on every street corner. And even on the pavement, uh, there were these little baskets, woven kind of baskets with flowers and fruit and incense on the pavement, which are very difficult to miss when you're going for a run early in the morning, especially when you're not trying to miss them. So I did a lot of prayer. Ooh, is that for me? Uh, I did a lot of prayer running on that on that trip, and was just really such a heaviness in my heart and for all of us on the trip about the bondage uh, to idolatry. But if we translate that into our own community, many people in our own community are in bondage to idolatry. They do things with a ritualistic uh, regularity that puts many Christians to shame. I remember at our previous church, I'd arrive and and the complex next to us, the residential complex, very kindly gave me a place to park because there was not any safe parking on the street. And I would see every Sunday morning as I got to the church early, I'd see a man there with his car out on the driveway and all this paraphernalia, buckets, sponges, chamois, washing his car. Every Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning. And it struck me one morning as I arrived and saw this ritual. He never greeted me, I don't know why, but um, I stood there and I realized, you know, we are both going to church this morning. As Christians, we've come together to worship Jesus, but this man and many others is worshiping his God, his car. And then I commented on that to someone in the congregation and got a very interesting reply. He said to me, one of, one of the people in, in the congregation said to me, well, you brush your teeth every day, don't you? Why don't you wash your car every day? All right, so that's how obsessed you are with your car. It's got nothing to do with my teeth. It's about how obsessed you are with your car. And I thought, oh, my goodness. We're just as bad, and I've seen it many times over. Well, Paul, we're going to meet this morning in a place called Athens, and he is greatly disturbed, troubled by the idolatry that is so in your face, and God enabled him in a very incredible and powerful way to share the gospel, the glorious truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. To a community to a nation and to a particular group of people who thought they were far too sophisticated and far too intellectual to be a follower of some peasant rabbi from another country, so let me let 's read together in John uh, rather act seventeen from verse sixteen if you read and I encourage you to read the context uh, The preceding verses, you'll see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are being chased from place to place because they're preaching the gospel. And the gospel is offending those who hear it. By God's grace, people come to faith, but there's such antagonism, there's such protest, there's such violence that they move from place to place. And in verse 17, or 16 rather, Paul is in Athens. And it's very interesting to see how he conducts himself as he's waiting for Paul and Timothy to join him. And so we pick it up at verse 16 of Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned, he spoke, he conversed in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we'll look a little bit into what they stood for just now, began to dispute with him. Same word, actually, as he reasoned in verse 17. So it's quite a strong dispute, debate, engagement sort of thing going on here. They began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Actually, quite a derogatory term. What is this babbler? He's not making any sense to us. He's speaking gibberish. Others remarked he seems he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news, the gospel about Jesus, and the resurrection. So, by the way, Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection, and you've probably heard that used for a girl's name I've heard some of girls called Anastasis. So when these Greeks were, heard Anastasis, they didn't hear resurrection. They heard a female name. So they thought that Paul's talking about this male God, Jesus, and his female cohort or partner, Anastasis. That's how confused they were. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said that's because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him rather forcibly. and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And then Luke gives us Thysanakis here, verse 21, in brackets, some information for those of us who are not familiar with the Athens of the day. Uh, It was 2,000 years ago, so some background is helpful. By the way, the picture on the graphic, uh, on the PowerPoint, is the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, as it's known, where this took place. Very grateful to Lee Helling for finding that amazing photo. So here's the Tissaphernes. Here's the information for us in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking. You know people like that. <laughs> Having nothing to say, they say it anyway. Doing nothing but talking, but they're talking about what they're talking about all the time. They're not being productive. They're not going to work. They're doing nothing but talking about listening, talking and listening to the latest ideas, the latest philosophies, the latest theories. Oh, wonderful. Sit around and talk, 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 talk. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting, Of the Areopagus, this is the sort of high council of Athens, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It was hard to miss, there's idols everywhere. For as I walked around and looked carefully, he was a student, he was studying, he was paying attention, he wasn't just wandering through, killing time, waiting for, for his companions. He was doing research in Athens so that he could be effective in sharing the gospel. He was, as some would say today, exegeting the culture, understanding what's going on here. I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around, verse 23, and looked carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. Are you one of those persons that need to read the inscriptions? I am. It's terrible. Don't, yeah, I can see that says Jesus over there, I think. Jeans, not jeans. Yeah, I read your T-shirts. If you're wearing a T-shirt with something on it, I read it. I I read signs, I read labels. I'm a nightmare at a museum. Because I'll take forever to get through there. He said, I read this inscription, to an unknown God. There's an idol in Athens, many idols to many gods, but here's, here's a strange one, as if the others aren't strange enough, to an unknown God. And when Paul saw that as he was doing his research, he was thinking, now how do I use, here's the hook. Here's my segue. How do I use this to preach the gospel in Athens? And he tells us, now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim. I'm going to preach. I'm going to tell you. And then he starts. The God who made the world, and by the way, in verse 24, he dismantles and smashes the whole of Athenian philosophy, Epicureans and Stoics as well, in one fell sweep, in one statement. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Take that sports fan. What's a place full of? Temples and idols and shrines. And he has not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's a fascinating statement. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's actually quoting Athenian philosophy and poetry. He's done his homework. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like your stupid idols, an image made by man's designer's skill. Now listen to verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who is that, Paul? He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they still got this weird idea. Some of them sneered, some of them mocked, but others said, we went to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Also a woman named Tamaris, Tamaris, and a number of others. Such an amazing study and really a template for us. This is is making disciples 101. This is so relevant for our world. We live in what is called a post-modern, post-Christian world. And the way that we witness to people today has to be unique in the sense that we need to know who we're talking to. We need to know our audience. The gospel never changes, but the audience always does. People are always changing. And Paul knew about Athens. He knew about their people, their philosophy, their poets, about their history, because he made it his business to know so that he could be effective in sharing the gospel. So I'm calling this message today Getting It Right. How do we live for Christ? How do we we witness? How do we share? How do we speak in our context in a way that is relevant, that, you know, Catches people's interest. You know the old saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But somebody said, ah, oh, but you can't put salt in the oats. <laughs> oh, you can. You can create a thirst. So how do we salt the oats? To create an, a, an interest and a curiosity and a thirst for the things of God. And people, believe me, people today are extremely religious. Uh, it, in the past, they're 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 laughed at now. But there were people who predicted that religion was going to die by the 20th century, by the 21st century. You know, Religion's is going to die. Atheism is the way forward. People are more religious today than they ever have been. And two new religions are started every single day somewhere around the world. So people are getting more and more religious. They're just religious about the wrong things. They're religious about Their car, or rugby, or their holiday, or their job, or whatever idol people are worshiping. So we need to get it right in our own lives, and in our lifestyle, and our witness. So I'm, again, just going to try and highlight some very prominent themes here out of this amazing passage of scripture. We'll see how far we get this week but I'm in a hurry. I hope you aren't. Have you heard that saying, I'm in a hurry, I'm on my way to work? Well, I'm not in a hurry because I'm on my way. I'm in a hurry because we're in the word of God. And we can pick this up next time if we need to. But this passage is so, so important. So, so Paul's in this religious environment. He's hearing it and seeing. He's seeing the idols. He's seeing people worship the idols. He's seeing people visit the idols, much like we did On that mission trip. And so he makes some categorical, no negotiation statements about God and about the gospel. The way he does it is very effective, and we can learn from that. But in the time we have, I just want to highlight the statements he's making that are very, very important. First of all, in verse 24, God is great. God is great. And when we say that, we mean God is the greatest. The God who made the world. Not any of these gods that you are worshiping or think you're worshiping. They're all man-made. Anyway. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. God is great. Now, we hear a lot of this cry completely out of context and speaking about a false God from the mouths of Hamas and other fundamentalist militants. Every video you've seen about the attacks in Israel, you're going to hear one cry more than anything else. God is great. God is great. God is great. Problem is the God they're talking about doesn't exist, so he can't be great. But they're doing what they're doing in the name of their God, Allah. Allah. And they have to keep telling everybody or maybe reminding their God that he's great. I don't know. But, you know, it's quite fascinating. I watch a program on YouTube, I recommend it to you, called Jihad Watch. Jihad, J-I-H-A-D, Watch. And Robert Spencer uh, does the research and presents it with uh, one of my favorite uh, apologists called David Wood. And no relation that I know of. but they record and report on violence against Christians and against non-Muslims around the world. And it's, they, they limit themselves to an hour every week, but they don't get through half of it. And what's very interesting is they recount people getting stabbed. And most times in Europe when people are attacked, they're cut in the neck because the Quran says strike them in the neck. So being a good Muslim, they want to do that. And they keep shouting all of these attacks. They shout, God is great. But amazing that the authorities and the police and the investigators can't understand the motive for these crimes. Why not? Because they choose not to. But it's very obvious from the perpetrators what they are doing. They're, trying to, they're spreading Islam. The only way it ever has spread is through violence and fear and intimidation. What we need to do is stand up and graciously and effectively say, no, the God of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, he is great and there is no other. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. Genesis starts with the greatness of God. In the beginning, What, what What? in the beginning? No, who in the beginning? In the beginning? There we go. In the beginning, God. Not anything else. Not anyone else. God, you notice the Bible doesn't start with a preface saying, Hello, humans. This is me, God. I'm going to tell you some confusing stuff, but I just want you to know I'm here. Does he need our permission? It's a declaration right off the bat. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, in the beginning. John chapter 1 is a parallel to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word created everything that is. So the Bible leaves us, doesn't leave us wandering around. And when we share the gospel, when we live the gospel, we mustn't leave people, like, confused. I'm living for an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's God. That's a statement of truth from Scripture. And this actually helps and assists us more than we realize because people, every person on the planet, at one time or another, has asked or is asking these questions. These are the big ones. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I going? I was invited once. It was a great evening to quite a fancy schmancy dinner. Um, I felt like a pork chop in the synagogue. I'm out of place and those things. But the question was, they asked people from delif- different faith traditions, religious backgrounds, to speak about life, death, and the afterlife. Uh, so they had, a, they had a Hindu, they had some New Age auntie, they had a couple other people. And providentially, I was the last one to speak. Uh, and I just laid down the smack from scripture about these questions. And then we had a very fascinating Q&A and some interesting discussions afterwards, because everybody is trying to answer these questions. Every religion has to try to address these questions. Where am I? Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What's my purpose? Where am I going? And included in that, by the way, any religion that's going to be considered even worth a hearing has got to deal with the issue of suffering. Why is there suffering? That's And and religions, especially the man-made ones, stumble around trying to explain that. Some deny it, some make a big deal of it, which is exactly what the Epicureans and the Stoics were on about. The Stoics believed that um, you just got to tackle life, take it on, stiff upper lip, you know, grin and bear it, even if it kills you. And it will eventually, you know, we know that. Life is a terminal disease. That's the Stoics. The Epicureans were saying, well, we're only here for a short time, live fast, die young, have a good-looking corpse. Hedonism, pleasure. Pleasure is the highest goal, so just live for pleasure. So these were the diverse, contradictory viewpoints and philosophies that were prominent in Athens, and they're still prominent today. Every religion that you dissect is going to either deal with suffering or try to deny suffering through one form or another. You can find modern parallels for Christian science, Scientology, just to name couple. Warren Wiersbe says, science attempts to answer the first question, where did I come from? And philosophy wrestles with the second. Why am I here? But only the Christian faith has a satisfactory answer to all three. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Only Christianity can answer that. We have the answers. We don't have to make them up. We just have to point people to them. And it starts with the declaration and the reality that God is great. But not only is God great, because you can have a great God that's very vicious, very foreboding, very menacing, like like Allah, the God of Islam. But no... The Bible tells us, and we see this in verse 25, that God is good, and he has not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he gives life. Pardon me, he himself gives life, or gives all men life, and breath, and everything else. He gives us everything. Every good and perfect gift, says James, comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is not even the slightest Suggestion of change. He's good. It's a grand declaration and statement and truth of our faith. God is good. He's good in his essence. He's good in his being. He is good in all his ways. There's no malice. There's no menace. There's no evil. God doesn't change. You know, the problem, one of the many problems with Islam, and i using islam because it's the next biggest religion in the world and it's making its advances at a rapid rate so we need to know what we're what we're dealing with here the problem with the god of islam is that he is arbitrary he doesn't have a consistent standard he basically always in a bad mood and and that means he hates you i heard a muslim Ex-Muslim believer in Southeast Asia took us through a study, I think it was 12 verses in the Quran. Everyone stating that Allah hates you and you're going to hell. From the Quran. So he's always in a bad mood, and sometimes he's in a very bad mood. That's kind of the range, you know. He's always in a bad mood, and sometimes in a very bad mood. And if you happen to die when he's in a very bad mood, you're damned. No paradise, no virgins. By the way, I shared this when we did that minor study in in Islam uh, a few Sunday evenings a while ago now. The, the The original text of the Quran is not Arabic but Aramaic. They copied and pasted from an Aramaic worship manual about Jesus. That's what happened. Aramaic and Arabic are very, slightly different. So the word that means virgin in Arabic, in Aramaic it means grapes. That's a bad deal. All you're going to get is 72 grapes. <laughs> Next religion, please. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth. Read it and weep. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's very evil. But the God of Scripture, the God of creation, is good. He gives all man life and breath and everything else. Scripture says, by his divine majesty, it's in Peter, he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. God doesn't leave us in the wilderness with a rat pack and a compass and say, Cray for you. Find me if you can before you run out of water or energy bars. No. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you believe in me, you have everlasting life. All we get when we read the words of Jesus is assurance, 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 and hope, and we celebrate his goodness and his grace Together, he is inherently good. It is the goodness of God that should lead men to repentance. Romans 2:4 says, "It's the kindness." Isn't that an amazing? Verse, look it up in Romans. Romans 2:4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God's kindness, His benevolence, His graciousness. It's not fear. If 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 you become a Christian to get some fire insurance, you know, from you don't want to go to hell. That's a reason to get saved, but it's not a good reason to get saved. That's a negative reason. There's so many more positive reasons. But too many of us have a negative view of Christianity, but God is good, and we declare it, we sing about it, we say it. He's good. But of course, there's always an objection to the goodness of God. It's one of the Anybody argue against Christianity and God? Uh, use, you know, how could a good God? Have you heard this one? If you've ever witnessed anyone in our postmodern, post Christian environment, you've got to, if if people don't ask me this question when I'm speaking to them about Jesus, I ask them why they didn't ask me. Because you're not playing by the rules. You've got to ask this question. You can't argue against Christianity and not use this argument. You say God is good. How could a good God let anyone go to hell? It's a sweeping statement. It's a a broad generalization based on emotion and reaction, not on intellect. And along with that goes, how could a God of love? You know, how could a God of love? Send anyone to hell. How can a God of love allow, allow children to suffer, babies to be decapitated, die of these horrific diseases? If, if, that's, if that's the God you worship, I don't want anything to do with him, people have told me. What's your alternative, man? What's your alternative? See, If you're going to object to Christianity, you got to come up with something better. You can't just say, you know, those people, you're like, you want this for dinner? No, I don't like that. Would you like a drink? No, I'm not thirsty. Want to go outside? And look? No, I don't like the sun. You know, it's just like, there's a little black cloud. It's always raining, you know, wherever they are. But do they ever come up with any good ideas? You know, I work with people in ministry. They come and they give me a problem. I send them away until they come back with at least one solution. It doesn't have to be a good one. Just try something, you know? So what's the alternative? As somebody said, okay, you say there's no God, so is the world better just by saying that? Has suffering ended? Has disease ended? Has war ended? Is it any better if you remove God from the picture? No, and a matter of fact, it gets a whole lot worse. Besides that, and thank you for asking the question, when you say, how could a good God... Please tell me what your definition of good is. Isn't that interesting? To ask people these questions. What is your definition of good? See, if we're going to value, if we're going to argue the value of of uh, uh, an attribute of God, we need to make sure we're on the same page. I can talk to Jehovah's Witness, and I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and, and anybody else. I'm, I really enjoy it. They talk about salvation. They call Jesus the Savior. They've copied and pasted, just like the Muslims. They've copied and, p- copied and pasted our language, but they don't mean the same thing by it. But we hear the magic words. If you go into the street in South Africa, go out of the church now, i give you my permission, go out of the gate, walk down the road, find the first person, and ask them, are you a Christian? Nine out of ten will say yes. Ah! Good. You walk away. No, no. What do you understand by the term? What's it? What's the statistics say? That's a very good way of lying. Is using statistics. Seventy odd percent of South Africa are Christian. So why? What's with all the gender-based violence and the rape and murder and crime and corruption? So we clearly mean different things by these different terms. So, so what is good? If you're objecting to the fact that God is good, let me hear what your definition of good is, because I doubt very much it's a biblical definition of good. And who is God good to? Well, firstly, he's good to himself. God loves, we love God because he first loved us. Why did he first love us? Because he loves himself. So God is good. He's good to himself. Does that sound weird? That only sounds weird because we have a cockeyed view of who God is. We say he's almighty. We say he's the creator. We say he's the righteous judge. But when the rubber hits the road, we're not so sure about those things. But God is good to himself. And because he's good to himself, he's good to us. But we need a biblical definition of what goodness is. Who defines that? The Bible must define what that is. And it's never a term that's used in isolation. But as we look at the table this morning, the table proclaims the essential goodness of God. And it tells us through these simple elements. Of the bread and the cup, that goodness in its essence is sacrificial. Goodness in its, in its essence makes a way when there's no way. God is good. Surely God is good to his people. And what's interesting. When we talk about goodness, is that you can speak to a believer, a saint who's been journeying with Jesus for decades, and they've been through all kinds of trials, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of heartache, and all kinds of loss. And what is one of the first things that comes out of their mouths? God has been good. God has been good. So clearly, God's definition of goodness and ours is slightly different. Would you agree? But for today, we're only going to go that far in Acts 17. We'll pick up next time with the rest. But today we're going to focus on what is the definition of goodness? What is the definition of love? What is the definition of greatness? Here's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread and the cup. This is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is poured out. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we know by faith, based on the goodness and the faithfulness and the promises of God and the finished work of Christ on the cross, that when he comes, Everything will be ultimately and finally and completely and comprehensively good. And in the moment, in the trial, in the challenge, we hold on to the goodness of God. Because he's good in all his ways and he's righteous in all his ways. Let's stop there for the moment so that we can come to the table.